on today's episode. My pathway began on studies of international relations and U.S. foreign policy. And as I started working on my dissertation, what started coming to the fore was blending the domestic with the international. It was to understand why my neighborhood became the hood. What were the forces where I saw folk who were doing everything that the society says they're supposed to do? They're working hard, they're taking care of their kids. I mean, they're checking all of the boxes. And then watching it crumble under the power of the Cold War, where things like the right to housing and the right to health care were deemed communistic. I'm your host, Greg Fendus. Stay tuned. This is One Big Question. Carol Anderson is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University. With scholarly precision, as well as an undeniable urgency, she has authored acclaimed and best-selling books that have transformed perceptions by focusing boldly on systematic racism and its influence on voter suppression, gun rights, and much more. As a historian, she has shed light on episodes of injustice that have been hidden in darkness, amplified voices that have long been silenced, and rewritten chapters on discrimination, disenfranchisement, and destruction that have been torn out of the historical record. Dr. Anderson's vision of history is vital, resonant, living, and breathing, shaping every aspect of life in a nation that feels increasingly divided over its history. Yet, there is an optimism running through her writings and teachings. Dr. Anderson has said, America is an aspirational nation, which means to me that the democratic principles and values we hold dear have not yet been fully realized. But with hard work, truth-telling, and hope, one day they can be. Amen. Well, Dr. Anderson, welcome to my podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. So this podcast is called One Big Question, and I want to start out with one really big question for you, one that I think sounds simple on the surface, but when you examine it, you find it's almost infinitely complex. You ready? I'm holding on. (laughs) Okay, here it goes. What is history, and who gets to write history? Lord have mercy. What is history? History is our story. It is the complexity of our story and our stories. Part of the problem has been is that we have gotten a flattened story. We have got what Chimamanda Adichie calls the danger of the single story. And that the danger of that single story is that when that is the only perspective, when that is the only lens, we lose so much. We're not able to understand what we're seeing, what we're living through, what we're experiencing. And we begin to treat things as if this was the first time or the only time, like it has no roots. It has no, no history. And who gets to tell that story? That has also been contentious, Um, and it deals with what has been the homogenization of historians for years. And so we were getting the same kinds of stories about powerful, great white men in, in 
in forging nations, in moving forward, in inventing, in creating, in developing, in thinking. And that's cool, but they weren't the only ones. And when we begin to tell the complexity of that story, we begin to to see the vibrancy about what could be. And that is why it is so divisive right now, because it is in that complexity that blows apart that single story. And when you blow apart that single story, then you begin to see the kinds of contributions that others have made. And when you're beginning to see the contributions that others have made, then having policies that erase those contributions, that erase those people, that's dangerous. And so this is, this is why history has been such a contentious site for the politicization that we're seeing. Well, that's absolutely happening today, and you are writing some very important histories yourself. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And Dr. Anderson, you're also very active advocating for causes, and you talked about policies that come from understanding history and different perspectives and different stories. But some might say historians should remain neutral. They should have an objective distance from the historical subject and subjects they're writing about. What would you say to that, that type of thinking? So I remember in grad school that question about objectivity and Ronkian objectivity, that belief that you could be set out, aside, apart from all that you grew up with, all that you've read, all that you've experienced. And so you just go in into the archives and you just look at these documents as if you were a tabla rosa. Um, and then you write this, this tome with no kind of influence from how you grew up, from the value systems that you, you, you understood, from the religion that you were taught, from the songs that you heard, from the art that you experienced, from the oppression that you experienced, from the inequalities or the, the super equalities that were coursing through society. That kind of Ronkian objectivity is impossible. What you must do as a scholar is what I tell my students. You don't fall in love with your subjects. You go through the record. You go through the evidence, understanding that you're dealing with people, and people are complex. There are great things that they do. There's really some foul, nasty stuff that they do. All of that matters in the ways that that the story evolves in the ways that the policies evolve. And so it is not falling in love with your subject or not hating your subject that allows you to be able to look at the evidence and then put it together. Because what histories do is it's not about the chronicling of then this happened and then this happened and then this happened, because that's important. But historians are really concerned with why this happened. And it is the why this happened that becomes so powerful. And this is where, again, you draw upon a range of sources and you don't fall in love with your subjects and you don't hate your subjects.
let me bring that to another issue today, and you spoke about education. In your book, White Rage, you wrote, since the days of enslavement, African Americans have fought to gain access to quality education. Education can be transformative. It reshapes the health outcomes of a people. It breaks the cycle of poverty. It improves housing conditions. It raises the standard of living. Perhaps most meaningfully, educational attainment significantly increases voter participation. In short, education strengthens a democracy. So, Dr. Anderson, when you look at education today across this country, from K through 12 to higher education, including Emory University, what are the biggest impediments to educational access, and what can we do to overcome them and strengthen our democracy? When I wrote that, when I wrote White Rage, and I've got a chapter in there called Burning Brown to the Ground, and that's the Brown decision. That was the chapter that broke my heart because there you saw the possibilities of embracing the education of all of our children, believing that they were all worthy of quality education. And you saw the systematic evisceration of that decision, the systematic contempt for black children, saying that they weren't worthy of education, they weren't worthy of schooling. And we see this moving through to that incredible decision coming out of Texas, the Rodriguez decision, where you had an area in San Antonio that was overwhelmingly Mexican-Americans. And they sued because of the vastly unequal funding that was happening in the K through 12 system. This poor community was taxing themselves at the highest legal limit possible and only generating something about like 30 some dollars per capita for per student. Whereas a much wealthier suburb was taxing themselves at a much lower level and generating hundreds of dollars per capita. And the Supreme Court said unequal funding does not mean unequal access to quality education. In what universe? (laughs) In what universe? When you begin to think about the resources that are available in schools, um, in terms of books, in terms of of libraries, in terms of teachers. Quality of teachers. Quality of teachers. When you begin to think about the kinds of resources that are available, that per capita spending, funding is essential. And so one of the things that we see at the higher ed level is the difficulties that we have at the K through 12 level because we have been unwilling to fix K through 12. And now we have a a movement afoot to basically dismantle public education and move public dollars into private vouchers when there is no evidence that those charter schools, those private schools, have any better outcomes than the public schools. And so what it requires is us fully investing and believing in K through 12, public K through 12. It means that we really do believe that all children can learn. And we mobilize our resources based on that concept. And we do the kind of investment in our children. Wow. If we did that, Oh, 
we're walking on water. Yeah. Well, the children are our future, and, yes. and we, we should be investing them in them, and we, we know that we're not. And we know that we're not. Instead, what we see is schools having metal detectors and resource officers. Um, we see heightened disciplines where we're doing what we call push-outs, where children are disciplined over and over and over again for minor infractions, for being kids to the point where they are sent out of school where after a number of push-outs, it's just it, they're so far behind it doesn't make sense for them to come back in. I mean, when we do that, we are eroding our own future as a nation. So let me ask a historical question. So public schools are rather a, a unique invention in, in the United States to educate students. And how did we get to the point now where – vouchers, privatizing public education has become a new trend? I trace it actually to the Brown decision. It was with the Brown decision that you saw state legislatures figuring out, okay, how do we ensure that white children get educated, but nobody else does? And so, for instance, in Prince George's County, Virginia, they shut down the public school system across the board. And they're like, now, see, we've got an equal education. And then what they did was they provided tuition vouchers for white segregated academies for white children to be able to continue their education. But there was nothing available for black children. Prince George's County was shut down for five years. So imagine you're in the fifth grade and your school system shuts down and it doesn't open up again until you're in the 10th. Imagine all of the education that you have lost. And we see this over and over and over until where you're, you're siphoning off public tax dollars, putting them into all-white private academies and nothing available for black children. So it was with Brown. It was the systemic racism in what was called massive resistance to the Brown decision where you see this, 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 okay, we're getting ready to destroy public schools and private schools, private schools are better. And it becomes part of the narrative of, of let the market decide that, you know, these public schools aren't functioning. And so if they had to compete, mm, then they would do better. But when you don't invest in those schools or where you invest is not about educating, it is about controlling and disciplining. So the roots of this, the Brown decision. 70 years ago. Systemic racism is real. Well, let me uh, switch to higher education. And uh, we know the uh, Supreme Court is preparing to make yet another decision on affirmative action in higher education. And that's something I've had some experience with in my uh, previous role. As a historian, let me ask you this question. Uh, why do you think affirmative action has been attacked and scrutinized for so long? And if the court overturns really decades, decades of precedence on affirmative action, what do you think that will mean for the next generation of our students? So affirmative action began like in 1971 or so. By 1977, we get the Bakke decision. 1978, yes. Yes, okay. And that Bakke decision basically said that colleges and universities 
could not use race as a means to determine who who entered and that affirmative action was not about ameliorating previous racial discrimination. And so then colleges and universities had to, to devise that diversity was a key educational principle, that there was value in diversity, and there is. So in those assaults, in those attacks, what you're really seeing is the power of the zero-sum game. It is the power of saying that the only way that African Americans can get will be at the expense of whites. The only way that anybody can, can, can get to this college, this university, has to be because they're, they're not qualified. And affirmative action lets in all of these unqualified minorities who take the seats of deserving, hardworking white students. So that's the underlying narrative in affirmative action. When I was at the University of Missouri, uh, Troy Duster came in. He had been teaching at the University of California, Berkeley. And I remember this talk he gave. It was just so, he said, at Berkeley, we have 3,500 incoming seats for freshmen. We got 16,000 applications. 9,000 of those students had 4.0s. So if you've got 3,500 seats and you've got 9,000 4.0s, ought to doggone-matically, there's some 4.0s that aren't getting into Berkeley. And then what the admissions team was looking at was not just GPA, but there may be a 3.9 who is a violin virtuoso. There may be a 3.8 that is brilliant in debate. And so they're thinking about what the composition of that incoming class will look like, how it can be vibrant. And that's not a whole slew of 4.0s. But what that narrative develops into, the other thing that he talked about was that Berkeley couldn't grow because they were able to track with the rise of the criminalization that was happening, the mass incarceration that was happening in these state budgets, money moving from the higher education budget into the corrections budget. And so the ability to build enough residence halls, the ability to hire enough faculty, to have enough classrooms for those who wanted to go to Berkeley wasn't there because of the policy decisions that legislators had made, but they don't own it. What they in fact say then is that, you know, we've got this affirmative action thing and they have to let in all of these unqualified minorities. And so that becomes the theme that you see coming through. So with the University of Texas case that had Amy Fisher, she was arguing that she was more qualified than those who were let in. And so they took her spot. What you're hearing in the Harvard case is the same thing. And so it deals with, one, how we define qualified, and it also deals with the framing, the political framing that we've had that minorities are undeserving and unqualified for their positions. And this is what keeps regurgitating through this system. 
Well, having been at Berkeley uh, during those years, including uh, the passage of Prop 209, Ooh. which eliminated uh, the use of race and ethnicity as a factor in admission decisions, I was very familiar with uh, what was going on at Berkeley and having been at Texas and successfully uh, defending against uh, Fisher, I can tell you that uh, we have so many students that can benefit from an education at a place like Berkeley, Texas, Emory. Every student that we admit is talented, is qualified, and in many dimensions that we should consider. And so I want to come back to the 1978 Bakke decision, which gave universities the discretion to make those decisions, the value of diversity and how you put together a diverse class of talented students. Are you worried the Supreme Court could overturn that decision and universities no longer have that discretion? Yes. I'm, what I'm worried about, I think about Prop 209 and what happened at Berkeley, what happened at UCLA, where you saw the number of African-American and Latino students just drop precipitously at those universities and and the impact that that has. And because you also saw it happening then in the law schools and in the med schools. And so when you're looking at the research, part of what we see is that, for instance, black patients have better outcomes when they have African-American physicians. But if what we're doing is we are, we're not fixing K through 12, and then we are ignoring the, the, the richness of diversity in our admissions, and we're going by straight scores, it is going to do enormous damage. And we have to recognize that. And it would, as they used to say in church, behoove us to begin to think through what are the implications of what this court will do so that we can maneuver around it to, in order to really have the kind of vibrant university so we can have the kind of vibrant democracy, the vibrant citizens, the engaged citizens, the knowledgeable citizens, the critical thinking citizens that this nation deserves. Well, you're absolutely right. And we're doing a lot of thinking to try to, to understand what, what might happen. Yeah. So, Dr. Anderson, let me switch gears and tell me a little bit about your personal journey. How did you become a historian, a scholar? You know, it started off as a child. My brother went to Vietnam during the war, and I wanted to know, why was my brother over there? Why was my brother so far away? What is a communist? You know, and why are we fighting communists? And it was that, that hunger, that, that drive to understand why am I experiencing this? What am I seeing? Why am I seeing this? And I remember as a child, we lived in Columbus, Ohio, and the newspaper we had was the Columbus Dispatch. And they had the stick figures for the body count on the front page. And I remember as a child looking at the stick figures, wondering if one of those was my brother. And so it was, again, it was this trying to figure this thing out. So the his, historical questions were really personal to you. Absolutely. They started early. They started early. Um, and I remember in 
in class, everybody was supposed to do a biography of somebody. And so my, my, my classmates are writing on Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. I wrote on Joseph Stalin. Um, and I remember my teacher looked at me. She went, Stalin? Stalin? And she was trying to figure out what manner of beast is this child? But this was me hungry for knowledge, hungry to try to figure it out. And so my pathway began on studies of international relations and U.S. foreign policy. And as I started working on my dissertation, what started coming to the fore was blending the domestic with the international. It was to understand why my neighborhood became the hood. You know, what were the forces where I saw folk who were doing everything that the society says they're supposed to do. They're working hard. They're taking care of their kids. They're going to church. I mean, they're checking all of the boxes. And that neighborhood just crumbled. And that's where I began this study that led to Eyes Off the Prize, was to look at the role where I saw African-Americans envisioning a human rights future and then watching it crumble under the power of the Cold War and of the Second Red Scare, where things like the right to housing and the right to health care were deemed communistic. If, if you believe in that, you must be a communist. And saying that to someone could just put them onto the path of oblivion instead of being able to really engage. And so I saw the NAACP pulling back from that human rights vision, believing that maybe we can get what needs to happen for black equality through a civil rights lens. Yeah, so that's how that happened, from Vietnam to, to the Cold War. And to, to, to today. To today, yes. Because, again, because I see these connections I'm able to, to, and the other piece is that my writing style is really accessible. So what I say is that the footnotes are for the scholars, the text are for the people. Well, having read your books, uh, as, as a non-historian, I can tell you your, your writing is very accessible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. There's a quote from the songwriter and poet Leonard Cohn that, uh, at least to me, evokes the spirit of your scholarship, and, and the writings we just talked about. And the quote goes like this, there is a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. So my final question, Dr. Anderson, is how with all the suffering that you have studied, the suffering in the world that we see today, the injustices that we see today, you still seem hopeful. So how do you, how do you remain hopeful and What's your guidance about how we remain hopeful? Well, you know, at Emory, I teach the civil rights movement, and I also teach a class, War Crimes and Genocide. And so in each of those, we are looking deep into the abyss. We're looking at the most horrible things that human beings can do to other human beings. But what we're also seeing is that crack, because at each moment, there is someone or some group that stands up and says, not on my watch. So you look for the helpers, as Mr. Rogers would say. You look for the people who are standing up against a Leviathan because they have a vision of what true humanity looks like. 
And that's where the hope is. Those folks have always been there. And I encourage my students to be the ones who stand up and say, not on my watch. That's where change is made. Well, this is a wonderful way to conclude this podcast. Thank you, Dr. Carol Anderson. Thank you for what you do. And thank you for being a historian and a professor at Emory University. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation immensely.